Um, so while you're turning there, I'll go ahead and pass the pallet line out to you. And uh, this morning, John is going to pick up his narrative where he's left off. Um, you remember that John has been sort of given commentary. He, he gave the story of Nicodemus and Jesus, and, that, and then he started giving um, some commentary on the, the astounding love of God and then the amazing rejection of that love um, by mankind. Um, so that's where he's been in, in John 3, and now John's going to take us forward to the next scene, really really what, what happens next in the, in the story. Jesus has been in Jerusalem ever since John chapter 2, verse 13. But now he's going to relocate to the Judean countryside and continue his, his ministry. And up to this point in the Gospel of John, there's been a pretty big theme that, that you might have picked up on. Um, there's been this theme of prophecy, of type, of shadow that is preparing for Christ. And now Christ comes on the scene as God, as Messiah, and he shows that he is greater than all of those things that came before him, and so he replaces it. So a good example of that is the temple. We come and we see him cleanse the temple, and the whole point of that, that scene is to show that the temple and the whole function of the temple was to prepare us for Christ, who is the ultimate temple, who is the ultimate meeting place between God and man, and will provide the ultimate access between God and man. And so this theme has been, been carrying us all through the gospel until this point. And this morning, John's going to pick up on that, that theme, and he's going to use John the Baptist. He's going to bring us back. We thought John the Baptist was done, right? He was in chapter 1. He's going to bring him up again. And he's going to use him and his baptism to really highlight this theme of the superiority of Christ. Christ is superior to everything that was before him, and so he replaces it. All that was prepared for him so that he would be all in all. So you can see this passage here. We get two ways the supremacy of Christ overall is portrayed through John the Baptist. Two ways the supremacy of Christ overall is portrayed to John the Baptist. So let's read it really quickly. John chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. John 3, 22. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Gideon countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Ainon near Salim, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive one thing unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. This joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, and I must decrease. So we get the, the first scene here, the, the first way John the Baptist and his baptism 
portray the supremacy of Christ in verses 22 through 26. And we see that John's baptism is replaced by the superiority of Christ's purification. John's baptism is replaced by the superiority of Christ's purification. In verse 22, we're told that following the time in Jerusalem, Jesus now departs, comes into the Judean countryside, and he remains there a little while with his disciples. And then we also learn about these two coinciding baptisms going on. Jesus is baptizing, and John is baptizing. And we find out that, that, that these baptisms are overlapping in time. Now, this is the only place in Scripture, in the New Testament, we read about Jesus having a ministry of, of baptism. It's just kind of weird. What, what, what's going on here? Jesus is, is baptizing. Um, well, the first thing we can say is that this ministry of Jesus, this baptizing ministry of Jesus, was accompanied by his preaching. Right? So in the, in the other Gospels, as soon as Jesus comes on the scene, begins his ministry, what is he doing? He's going about preaching what? What's the content? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the same message as John the Baptist. Except now it's being preached by the one John the Baptist pointed to, Jesus. And so it's not surprising that Jesus would carry over the symbol that John the Baptist used, the symbol of repentance, the symbol of purification from sin. So what we can say here is that Jesus' ministry was the outgrowth of John's ministry. It had the same message and it had the same symbol. And that's what's going on here uh, in verse 22. But Jesus' baptism is also a little bit different from John the Baptist. And the main point of difference is that Jesus is receiving these disciples to himself. He's not sending them to John. That's very significant. Look over at chapter 4, verse 1. What does it mean that he's baptizing people? It means that he's making them his own disciples, just like John baptized people and made them his disciples. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. That's how Jesus' baptism is different. He's making his own disciples now. He's not sending them over to John. Um, there's another point of difference. And that is that Jesus himself is not doing the baptizing. John's, baptized, John's baptism, who did the baptizing? It was John. But here, Jesus is not baptizing. Look at John chapter 4, verse 2. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So that's interesting. Um, Jesus himself is, is not doing the baptism. So you say, well, why not? Why is Jesus not performing these baptisms? He's preaching, he's overseeing the baptism, but he's himself not doing it. Why? Well, I think it, it's pretty clear. What did John say the Messiah would do? John says, after me comes one who will do what? He will, I baptize with water, he will <clears throat> baptize with the Holy Spirit. So I think Jesus here is not performing the baptism or make it clear, hey, hey, this is not that. That is still to come. That baptism with the Spirit, that's going to come through my cross and resurrection. What he's doing here is temporary. He doesn't repeat it anywhere else. It seems like it's just this little overlapping time between him and John the Baptist. Jesus is baptizing. And again, it's symbolic. It's to point forward to what Christ will accomplish when Christ himself does the baptism. It's temporary, and it points forward. 
to Jesus. So we can sort of summarize it in this way. Jesus' baptism points back to John the Baptist. It links him with John's ministry and John's message. And it points forward to the ultimate baptism that Jesus will provide. All right? So that's what's going on here. Well, at the same time as all this is going on, John the Baptist is still on the scene. John is still baptizing. And if you read the other Gospels, John's baptism and his ministry ends pretty abruptly. It says John's thrown into prison, and immediately what happens? Jesus comes on the scene. Um, but what we get here is we see it wasn't quite so immediate. Um, look at verse 24 of chapter 3. It says, For John had not yet been thrown into prison. He hasn't been thrown into prison to be beheaded by Herod yet. So we get this transition time between John and Jesus, and it wasn't immediate. Um, they're serving at the same time as each other. Verse 23 tells us that John was baptizing at a place called Ainon near Salim. Um, Ainon literally means springs. So it's the ideal place to baptize because water was plentiful there. That's what, what John says. Um, John began his, his ministry at the northern end of the Jordan River. So you think of the map, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. He began at sort of the northern side of the Jordan River on the west side. So you look at, on the east side, you look at the map, it's on the right-hand side of the Jordan. Well, now he's a bit further south, and he's now on the mainland side of, of Israel, the, the west side, the left side of the Jordan River, um, continuing his, his ministry. And the point of verse 23 is to tell us that people are still coming to him. He, he's, he's moved locations, but he still has a ministry. He's still attracting people <clears> through <throat> his message. They're coming to him. So this is a transitional period between John and Jesus. Um, but what's interesting is that now more people are going to Jesus. Look back at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. So now what's going on here is the baton's being passed. They're both baptizing. They both have their ministries and their messages but Jesus is slowly growing in his influence and the disciples coming to him and, and John is slowly decreasing. So it's a transition. So before we move on, we need to remind ourselves about the nature of John's baptism. Okay, so, so we're going, going somewhere with, with all of this, so just bear with me. Remember when we first talked about it, we said John's baptism was a ritual form of purification. Okay, it did it. The water had no power in itself. It was symbolic. It was a ritual form of purification. It was, it was very similar to what the Jews called proselyte baptism. So you think back to back chapter 1 when we talked about it. The Jews required a ritual washing for Gentiles who wanted to convert over to Judaism. It was a symbol that they're washing off all their Gentile uncleanness. So it's, it seems like that's what John's baptism is modeled after. But what made John's baptism so provocative was who is he preaching to and demanding this baptism of? He's preaching to Jews. He's saying, Jews, you're no better off than Gentiles. You too are unclean in yourselves. You too need to prepare for Messiah by repentance and seek cleansing from God, not from some external Jewish rituals. Um, that's the point of, of, of John's baptism. His, his point was not only to prepare their hearts by repentance, but, but to direct their eyes to God for the cleansing that they need. Um, and you can really see this general attitude of the Jews in Nicodemus, right? 
What did he think? He thought his Jewishness was enough. He was appalled that Jesus would say, you're not prepared for the kingdom. You need another kind of cleansing. You need another washing, a purification that you don't have. So that, that's the point of, of John's baptism, was to call the, the Jews to, to look beyond themselves to the Messiah for, for purification. So now with all this in the background, so, so John's ministry of baptism, that's his purpose, that's what he's doing. And now Jesus has become this ministry of baptism. Now in verse 25, we get this sharp debate. A sharp debate arises. Look at verse 25. All that sort of background now. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So we get three details here. We're not told a lot of the contents of this debate, but we get three things that really, I think, clarify what's going on. First thing we, we, we see is that it's literally a, a debate arose from John's disciples. It looks like John's disciples here are, are sort of picking the fight. John's disciples are, are initiating this, this confrontation. It's also with a Jew. Um, John's, John's disciples are all Jews, so this guy seems to be a non-convert. He, he's someone that John's disciples are engaging, confronting. The third thing we see is, is it's about purification. Now, given what we just said about the purpose of John's baptism, that makes really good sense, right? It's about purification, about the cleansing and the removal of sin. The topic is purification, and we don't get a lot of other details because we don't need them. We don't need the other details to make sense of what what's going on here. The disciples of John are confronting a Jew on the issue of purification from sin in his need for John's baptism. It seems like that's what's going on. Now the Jews were not opposed to ritual purification, right? They had all these external washings and traditions that they would do to deal with their uncleannesses. You read through the Gospels, they had all these other extra-biblical ways of, of purification. But John's baptism was unique. It called for repentance on the heart level. It called the people to look to God for purification. And so John's baptism was a superior form of ritual purification. God sent him to do this. It was a symbol that called the Jews to look to God, not to their rituals for cleansing. And so that's pretty good grounds for controversy. You want to pick a fight with a Jew at that time? You tell him that his rituals of Judaism aren't enough. He needs this baptism of, of, of John to prepare for Messiah. Um, so what does all this have to do with Jesus' ministry? Why, why, why does John bring up Jesus' ministry here? Does that mean that as part of the discussion here, are they talking about, hey, Jesus is over there baptizing? Um, we don't know. We're not, we're not told. Um, maybe it was part of the discussion. Maybe it was not. But what's important is that this debate now between John's disciples and this Jew moves the disciples now to think about Jesus. How do we think about Jesus now in relation to John's baptism? How do we reckon with Jesus' growing popularity? I mean, if John's baptism is God-ordained, if John's baptism is a superior form of purification that the Jews must submit to, then what do we do about Jesus? All these people are now going to him. Who does Jesus think that he is? And I think that's sort of what's going on in the disciples' hearts. So look now at verse 26. They ask this embittered question. Verse 26. 
And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. What's going on, John? This question implies that they're not just seeking to understand a little bit more about Jesus. They seem to be really bitter about this. They're, they're, they're sort of offended at this. They, they, they exaggerate all are going to him. Well, clearly not all are, but majority of people now. A lot of people are now going to Jesus. They're not coming to John. Look what they say also, how they identify Jesus. He was the one with you on the other side of the Jordan. He was the one to whom you bore witness, John. In other words, they're saying, John, look at all you've done for him. And now he's setting up camp down the Jordan to compete with you. Who does he think that he is? Leon Morris comments, John's disciples believe that John had behaved generously and bearing witness to Jesus. They find it intolerable that Jesus should then act in independence, so to speak, and gather more disciples than his illustrious predecessor. I mean, John's baptism is, is, is ordained by God. We don't know about this, this Jesus guy. So John's disciples take up a reproach for John. They're embittered. They're resentful. At the audacity of Jesus to, to, to do this and take away from John's ministry. This attitude reveals that they have not yet grasped the significance of John's baptism. They haven't grasped the significance of his ministry. They somehow consider John to be superior and Jesus inferior. And so John's going to respond in the next few verses about teaching them the, the nature of Christ and why it's necessary that Jesus replace John. But before we go there, um, I just want to think about this theme of purification a little bit more and how John's baptism relates to Jesus' ministry. It's very, very important. Here's the point of the passage so far. The symbolic ritual purification that John called for in his baptism is now progressively being replaced by an even superior form of purification in Jesus. Okay, does that make sense? What's the purification that Jesus offered? It's not his baptism that he's doing. That's just the symbol. What is the purification that Christ has come to offer? It's the cleansing of sins. How is that going to happen? It's going to come through his cross and his resurrection. That is the purification that Christ has come to bring. And this theme of purification has been a major theme in the Gospel of John. So think back to the very first sign. What was it? The changing of water into wine. It took place at a wedding, and what did Jesus use? There was empty stone jars for the Jewish rites of Purification. It's the exact same word. It's only used these two times in John. Very intentional. And the whole point of that sign was that Jesus has come to replace and provide a better form of purification than the empty rituals of Judaism. That's what Jesus has come for. And he would do it through himself and his death and resurrection. And then in John 3, Jesus is confronting um, John the Baptist uh, is confronting Nicodemus. And he says, you need what? You need new birth from water and spirit. What, what did we say those represented? The new covenant promises. Water, cleansing, spiritual cleansing from the guilt of sin. And spirit, the Holy Spirit, which will liberate you. Change your heart from the power of sin. So these themes are, are going through John. 
And how do you get those? It's not by baptism. That's not how you get purification. How is it? John 3, what did Jesus tell you? It is by faith. It's by faith. In who? In the uplifted Son of God who bore the wrath of God for sinners. You want purification? You want the Holy Spirit? You look to Jesus. That's the point. That's the purification that he's come to bring. And that's what everything is pointing forward to. So that's the, that's the key. Now, just want to step back really quickly and, and think about how this applies to, to ourselves. I'm pretty sure that no one in here struggles with going back to Jewish rituals of, of purification. I don't think, right? Is there anyone in here that did a mikvah bath today? I don't think so. But it's the natural bent of the human heart to seek purification from our sin in another way than Christ. Why? Why do you think that is? Throw that out to you. Why is it our natural bent to seek ritual purification? Maybe it's not sprinkled with water, but we do ways. Why does man not want to look to Christ for this? Pride. It's pride. That's what it comes down to. I don't want to humble myself. I can't do it. Oh my God. Good work. Yeah. Yep. Sorry? Good. I have to acknowledge my guilt and sin? Yeah. A lot of times it's <clears throat> like if you repent of sin and you find yourself right back in it time and time again, you like feel guilty. So mm-hmm. you have to feel like you have to like yep. prove to God that you're serious Excellent. this time. So you like, like, well, I'm doing the right things now mm-hmm. before you like repent again. Yep. Like, well, I'm not going to repent Good type of thing. Good self reliance and then distrust in the character of God and yeah, all those things. Yeah. Uh, I think it even just goes down to our, our nature of rebellion against God. Good. We don't want to do what God wants us to do. Yeah. We will always try to find another way. Excellent. Yeah, that goes right. The previous section, light and darkness, right? Or, or bent against God, yeah. We don't want to be confronted with the holy. Yeah. You know, we Adam and Eve did because yeah. they realized in the presence of God. I am guilty, mm-hmm. and so it's still a hiding. It's yeah. that natural. It we can make our own fig leaves. That's a lot easier than yeah. being confronted with holy. It's good. Excellent. Excellent. <clears throat> That's why we need the transformation of heart. That's why God has to do the work if we're going to come to this. But we still struggle with it. So I, I jotted down a few ways you can. If we had some time, I would throw this question out to you. Um, we gotta get through a few more verses. What are some ways we attempt purification? On our own, apart from Christ, I put self-atonement. We wallow in our guilt, thinking that's going to somehow help. We promise God, okay, I'll repay you. Um, I, I, I fear to approach God until I can perform some good works. Okay, sin again against God, so I can't come to him now in confession and faith. I'm going to have to wait till Thursday until I've really proven myself to him. All is self-atonement. Blame-shifting. I don't own my guilt. I, 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 I blame it on another. Moral improvement apart from faith in the gospel. Trying to fix life by man's techniques and not by, by faith in Christ and the gospel. Relying on the spirit through the word. All attempts of, of man at self-purification. But Christ has come to offer us purification. That's the point. Symbolized in John's baptism. Symbolized in Christ's baptizing. And now offered through his cross yours by faith and you don't just come to that one time you continue your life and faith and dependence on it so that's the supremacy of Christ um, being portrayed 
through John's baptism. It replaces it. Next, the supremacy of Christ overall is portrayed as John's person is overshadowed by the superiority of Christ's person. Verses 27 to 30. The rest of the passage, John is going to answer this embittered question of the disciples. Um, they're frustrated. They're bitter. How in the world could Jesus have the audacity to, to, to take away? I mean, John, you're sent by God. You have this superior form of purification. And in John's response, he not only teaches us about the superiority of Christ's person, he also gives us a model for how we are to live if we truly grasp. The person of Christ. So let's look at these. The first one. In verse 27, John exalts God's sovereign purpose. God's sovereign purposes. Verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. John says, It is impossible for a person to have a single one thing in your life impossible for you to have. He's using this um, to, to apply to his ministry. It's a general truth. And he's speaking of his ministry, but, but it applies to everything, every person. We don't have one thing of our own that's owing to us or any other person with one exception. With the exception that it's given to him from God. Given emphasizes God's grace, and God emphasizes God's sovereignty. The only reason, John says, for why I have this ministry, the influence that I have, the only reason that you have anything that you have is owing to God's grace and God's sovereignty. That's what it comes down to. John cannot claim even the slightest bit of responsibility for his ministry. If he has anything, it's because it was given to him by God. Look what D.A. Carson said. God's sovereignty stands behind all human claims. For a human being doesn't have anything but what he has received. John recognized that for him to desire more influence, I just, yeah, okay, you're right, I, I want some more influence here. More prominence, more attention would be an assault on God's grace and God's sovereignty. That's what John's saying. And so John's first check against this misevaluation of ministry, this desire to compete with Christ, is by remembering the source of anything he has is from God. And here John's a model for us. None of us would like to say that we, we, we want to compete with Christ for supremacy. All of us say, says, yes, Christ is supreme. But man, this is an easy deceiving trap for every one of us in here. And John says it begins when we forget the truth that I do not possess a single thing that has not come from God. That's where it starts, when I forget that. And oh, the craving for influence, of being recognized, of wanting more attention for myself. It's huge. And we dress it up by saying, I, I just want more influence for Christ. I'm just concerned about, about, about Christ and, and his glory. That's why I want this influence and, 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 and more um, reputation is Christ. But the root of it is just self-love and we're just using Christ as a step stool for our own glory. It's very tempting. It's very tempting in ministry and it's very tempting in all of our lives. And it begins by forgetting this truth. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, what do you have that was not given to you? 
And if it was given to you, then why do you boast as though it wasn't given to you? In other words, the beginning of self-exaltation begins when we forget that everything we have comes from the Lord. And why has he given it to us? For the purpose of Christ and his exaltation. So before we move on, I just want to give you some warning flags. That I, warning flags that I've begun to forget this truth and crave self-exaltation. That I've forgotten this truth that anything I have is from God and it's only for the purpose of Christ. That I've begun to compete with Christ for supremacy. So I just bullet point them. I don't have a ton of time to unpack them. Meditate on them when you go home. Use them as diagnostic questions in your heart. I've forgotten this truth and I compete with Christ for supremacy when I covet or envy the giftedness, position, or callings of others. We may justify it by saying, I just want to see Christ glorified, but we expose ourselves because we're, we're envious, we covet. Number two, we, we, we don't rejoice when he's glorified in and through another. We see another that is bearing fruit, that God's using him. And instead of rejoicing, I'm, I'm a little bit bitter and jealous. Number three, I, I don't commend another when I see God's work in them. I see God using a person, and I'm not going to commend that person for that. I'm jealous of them. Reveal I've begun to compete with Christ for supremacy when I get frustrated, when I'm overlooked, and I'm not thanked. Man, I've done this ministry for 10 years, and a person has not even said thank you one time. I give up. I lose zeal or joy when my work goes unnoticed. Okay, I just won't do it anymore, I say. Number five, I do things to intentionally get notice, rather than going out of my way to intentionally avoid notice and recognition. I'm competing with Christ for supremacy. Six, when I'm not content with where Christ has sovereignly placed me. Remember, everything you have is from Christ. Put it in other words, I refuse to bloom where Christ has planted me. Where's Christ planted me? What gifts has he given me? What specific place? Yes, we should have desire to do more for him, but am I investing what I have now to the best of my ability for him and for his glory? All of this reveals that I've begun to covet self-exaltation and not Christ. And this is what John preaches to himself. This is how John guarded himself. I don't have anything that's not been given to me. How can I boast? Well, John now in verse 28 goes on to retell his single mission. Look at verse 28. He says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. Kind of funny, John's disciples tried to use John's testimony about Christ as a way to, to, to pin it against Jesus. Like, John, you testified about Jesus, right? So how dare Jesus now go in and, and set up his own ministry deal down the river? Um, but John turns it around on them, and, and he really shows that they're self-condemned. They've just admitted they heard John's testimony, but somehow they ignored the whole content of John's testimony, Right? What was the content of, of John's testimony? His testimony from day one was intentional to declare what he's not. Remember in chapter one, John says, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not any of these things. It's the whole point of this mystery. It's what I'm not. 
His whole ministry was to highlight that Messiah is coming. In other words, the superior doesn't always come first. Sometimes he comes last. And when he does, this is the point, it's the job of the inferior and everything that was before him to bring attention to him. And you know this principle well. I was trying to think of examples and thought back to the State of the Union address. Probably watched it a few weeks ago. And before the President of the United States enters the House of Representatives, who's the first person on the scene? It's the Sergeant at Arms of the United States House of Representatives. He's the first person you see. What does he say? He says, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. And he gets out of the way. And who comes on the scene? It's the president, and everyone stands and, and claps. And in that moment, there's no question as to who's inferior and who is superior. The only reason that guy is there is to draw attention to the superior who is coming. That's what John's saying. I'm, just because I'm first doesn't mean anything about me. My whole point is to draw attention to Christ who's coming. That's the function of John, and really that's the function of the entire Old Testament. All the types, all the symbols, they were there to prepare for Christ. But John's going to give his own illustration in verse 29. He rejoices in a obscure position. Look at verse 29 now. He says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In order to understand this, this illustration, it's an amazing illustration, we, 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 we need to know a little bit of the Jewish wedding customs of the day. Um, John talks about the friend of the bridegroom. What's that? What's the friend of the bridegroom? Um, most people think it was what was called the shoshbin in Hebrew. It means something like our, the best man. But it's a little bit different from how we would think of the best man um, today. Um, it was a very high honored position. To be the best man, the shoshbin, you were chosen by the bridegroom. He chose you for this position. And your primary responsibility was for the success of the wedding. So his job was to coordinate the wedding, to make sure it went smoothly. Um, he would often contribute financially to the wedding. He would escort the bride to the bridegroom. And his job was the chief witness of the union between bride and bridegroom. He was a very, very important guy. And the joy of the shoshbin, of the, of the best man, came when the bridegroom was united with his bride. When the, when the wedding went smoothly, without any problem. When they were brought together, and it was a, a success with no glitches in the, in the wedding. That's what he was most joyful about. And that's the picture that John gives. That's the picture of this friend standing and hearing the bridegroom's voice. The friend, the Shoshbin, has done his job, and now he must fade into the background. John the Baptist says, I'm just the Shoshbin, I'm just the best man. My job was to present the bride to the bridegroom, to prepare the way for the union between bride and bridegroom, to witness their union. That's why I was chosen, just like the bridegroom would choose his best man. But let's take it one more step further. Think of how unimaginable it would have been for that friend, that, that, that best man that was chosen to do all this in the wedding, not only for him to try to steal some attention during the wedding, but for him to attract the bride to himself. That would be absolutely criminal. 
right? And that is what John says right here he would be guilty of if for his own ambition he would attract disciples away from Christ himself. It's high-handed. The friend is chosen for one purpose. He's not the point. It's not his wedding, John is saying. So how does this apply to us? First, I'd say this is what we are guilty of when we try to use Christ or ministry or the gospel to gain a following for myself. You want to know what's the problem with all these celebrity pastors out there who are gaining this big following and people come away and they, they, they're not thinking about Christ or sin or the gospel, but how great that preacher was? You know what they're guilty of? They're guilty of stealing the bride of Christ, competing with Christ for his bride. We're guilty of forfeiting our roles as pointers to Christ and instead becomes thieves of Christ's bride. What should we do instead? John says rejoice in your obscurity. Rejoice in obscurity. You're not the point. It's not your wedding. It's not my wedding. It's Christ's. There's another way that this passage applies to us. What's the closest parallel between us and this passage? It's not John the Baptist. Who is it? Who are we most closely parallel to in this passage? Disciples. Not just John's disciples, yeah, in our, in our sinfulness, in our ministry, it's the bride, right? It's the disciples who are coming to Christ. Who are we? People that have responded to Christ, we're his bride. Those who respond to Christ to receive his purification are the bride of the bridegroom. And John says that the bridegroom rejoices in what? He rejoices in his bride. If you're a disciple of Christ, John says that Christ rejoices over you. We have a couple minutes. This is such a good passage. Hold your hand here and go to Isaiah 62. This is preparing for this, this, this time that, that John is talking about. Look at Isaiah 62, verse 4 to 5. Jesus rejoices over his bride. That's the point. Yes, we need to be on guard that we're not like the disciples of John. And we need to be aware of our identity. We're the bride. And Jesus rejoices over us. Look at verse 4. Chapter 62 of Isaiah, verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no, be, no, no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land Mary, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God rejoices over you. That's amazing. So know who you are. You're the bride of Christ. And he rejoices just as the bridegroom rejoices in his bride, Christ rejoices and those who come to him for purification. So go back to John 3. John's almost finished here. In verse 29b, he talks about the complete satisfaction he has. Look at how John finishes it. He says that the friend and the bridegroom greatly rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. This joy of mine is now complete. You might be thinking, Michael, that this ministry of John's is so self-facing, so self-deprecating. He takes no credit. He's willing to be pushed in the background. It sounds pretty miserable. But I'd say only if you don't know the glories of Christ. 
John says that it's his greatest satisfaction and joy. So if you're lacking joy and happiness, it's very likely that you're looking for it in the places the world told you it would be, in self-exaltation and in self-service. But John says that his greatest satisfaction has not come from self. It's come from what? It's come from the joy of another. It's come from the joy of Christ receiving his bride. That's where joy comes from. Do you want joy? Then forget about yourself. Do you want joy? Then give yourself to selfless service to Christ's bride. Do you want joy in your life? Then get to know how much Jesus is joyful over you, his bride. Forget about self. And look to Christ. Number 30. I mean, number 30. Verse 30. Last point. John embraces his displacement. Very famous verse here. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. In other words, this is God's ordained plan that the Messiah have supremacy, that the Messiah receives his bride, and it will happen. And it's his plan that John and every other messenger be literally made lower, be diminished, be, be made inferior to Christ. So John's disciples are way off the mark. <laughs> They're guilty of missing the point of John's baptism, that it pointed to Christ's purification. And they're guilty of opposing God's purpose and trying to steal Christ's bride. It's big. And we can be guilty of the same thing when we crave um, influence for ourselves and we resist God's purpose. So Christ is still gathering his bride. He's doing it. And we can be part of the mission. We are part of it because we are his bride. So I, I leave you with two applications. Rejoice in the purification of Christ. You're his bride. You've been washed. And he rejoices over you. And pursue selfless ministry. Embrace obscurity. It's not a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. Because it's all about Christ. It's his wedding. Serve in obscurity. D.A. Carson says, John finds his joy not in grudgingly conceding victory to his superior opponent, but in wholeheartedly embracing God's will and the supremacy of it assigns to Jesus. It's all about him. That's what we learn from, from this passage. So we got like one or two minutes. Is there any questions, comments? Yes. Why is baptism commanded? Why is I know it's an outward sign of an yep. outward change, but why is Excellent. it commanded? Yep. So that brings me back to one point. What we're seeing here, these baptisms, none of this is Christian baptism. All of these are pointing forward to what Christ would accomplish. What we do now, Christian baptism, testifies to what Christ did accomplish and is washing us, and it testifies to the change that happened in our, in our hearts um, as, as believers. So there's no power in the water. There's never power in the water then. There's no power in the water here. It's faith um, that, that does the work um, through Christ. So, yeah. Questions, comments? Yes? Say, this kind of takes the wind out of the sail of the Catholic argument, especially in the Reformation that the saints are people that should yeah. be removed from the body, yeah. exalted beyond yeah. the regular common people. Yep. Um, you know, John is a perfect model of saying, yes. no, I'm not a saint who's yeah. above or removed. Yep. I'm, I'm the least, and Excellent. my mission is to point to Christ. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. Thoughts, questions, comments? So rejoice in Christ, supremacy and practice obscurity. Bloom what Christ is planning to do. Use whatever gifts God has given you in your life and give him credit.
Father, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for Christ. He offers such a supreme form of purification. Nothing else would do. Oh, Lord, let us rejoice in him because he rejoices in us because he's washed us clean through bearing the wrath of God in our place. Let us never forget it. Let's never move on. Father, help us to be faithful slaves. Remember, anything we have is from you and for Christ. Guard us, oh God, guard us from competing with Christ for supremacy. Use us, help us to embrace obscurity and to rejoice in the glory of Christ. We love you. Ask this in Jesus' name.